Okay, I just wanted to start, do a bit of a big picture of uh, where Ezekiel fits into the Bible and start right back with Genesis 1, of course, where God makes a beautiful and perfect world. And as you read over Genesis 1, we're not going to read it now, uh, but it kind of climaxes in verse 26, where God makes us human beings. And the difference between us and all the animals is all the animals are made according to their kind, but we're made uniquely in God's image. We are like God. We're different to the rest of the world. And God has given humans a special role in that world, and we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden given this role, of ruling his creation. Uh, Not wrecking it, ruling it and taking care of it. Adam and Eve are made to rule the world under God. So they are like God, but they're not God. He's God. They are like God. That's important because when we get to Ezekiel 28, we find out that the king of Tyre is also ruling his nation, uh, ruling the world like Adam and Eve were meant to, but in a way that was different to what they're meant to rule it because the king of Tyre, we've just heard in Ezekiel 28, he wants to be God. He doesn't want to be like God. He wants to make himself God, which as we read on tragically uh, in Genesis 2 and 3, That's exactly what Adam and Eve decide to do. They want to be their own king and queen. And so in Genesis 3, uh, in a a bit of an uprising where they disobey God's word and they follow uh, the devil, um, God banishes them from the garden in punishment. And he places a, a cherub, which is just a kind of a creature with wings, to guard the way back into the garden. In other words, uh, Adam and Eve are now outside of God's perfect place and in a world with weeds and sin and the consequences of their actions. Now, as you read on in Genesis 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, um, you'll notice that sin spreads. It's not just Adam and Eve disobeying God, their children murder each other. It gets worse and worse until chapter 11, um, as if the whole Noah thing wasn't bad enough. In chapter 11... Um, It comes to a climax in the Tower of Babel um, where if you have a look at chapter 11, verse 3, it's a wonderful display or a terrible display of human arrogance and pride. Human beings decide that they want to build a tower to heaven um, to be like God. Chapter 11, verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Being, a, uh, They want to make a name for themselves. How does God respond? Well, he makes a mockery of their efforts. Uh, they wanted to not be scattered, so he scatters them over the face of the whole earth. And at that point, the nations are born. We don't just have one nation now. We have lots of nations all speaking different languages. Now that's important because when we get into Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 25, Ezekiel addresses these very same nations because of their pride. So Genesis 11, we have a world of all these different nations and they're all opposed to God. It's a bit of a far cry from the plan back in Genesis 1, isn't it? Maybe you've had a a project that went wrong. Maybe you've had a cross-stitch that Somewhere along the way you made a wrong turn and you had to unstick it, unstitch it one stitch at a time uh, to fix it up. Maybe you had a 
you cut a piece of wood the wrong length and when you went to assemble it all together, it just didn't fit. Well, God's world has gone wrong. Only this isn't because of him. This isn't because he made it wrong. This is because human beings in their pride have decided to overthrow their creator and get rid of God and run the world their own way, which just will not work. We're almost ready to look at the book of Ezekiel, but before we do, one more step, Genesis 12, because after that terrible start, after all that's gone wrong, you might just think God would just leave the world in a mess and forget about it, but he doesn't. He picks one man, Genesis 12 verse 1, Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, and God decides to start again. God says that he's going to start a new nation, uh, not a nation like all the other nations that are opposed to him, a nation that will be his. Have a look at Genesis 12:2. This is what God promises to Abram. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. Notice how different that is. In Babel, they wanted to make their own name great, but here God will make them, them great. It's all God's initiative here. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God is going to pick, start again. And from Abram, he's going to start a new nation. Not like the other nations, a new nation that will be his. And when we get to the book of Ezekiel, which is a, a fair way down the track from Genesis 12, I know. But that nation that was promised way back in Genesis 12 has grown up and is the nation of Israel that we've been looking at for the past four weeks. Only in Ezekiel, it's not quite the nation that Abraham might have been looking forward to when God gave him this promise. Because we've seen, haven't we? Um, God announces to his nation, this nation of Israel that are his, uh, that they've become just like the other nations. In fact, they're worse than the other nations. And God's had enough of even his own nation. And that's been the message of Ezekiel for the past four weeks. So far, the book of Ezekiel has been on God's people and their rejection of him and the punishment that he's about to pour on them. We'll turn with me now to Ezekiel 25. Lost my bookmark. That was a good plan. So after Ezekiel addressing God's nation, the nation of Israel, his special people, in chapter 25, something different happens. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, that's Ezekiel, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. And then look at verse 8. Um, this is what the sovereign Lord said, because Moab and Seir said. And then uh, verse 12, because Edom did such and such. And verse 15, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, because the Philistines did such and such. In other words, Ezekiel has now stopped addressing the nation of Israel and God has told him to turn out and start talking to all the nations around. It would be like uh, there would be a message for Australia and now God's saying, talk to Indonesia, talk to New Zealand, talk to all the neighbouring nations. And in a clockwise circle, uh, God has a message for all the nations around Israel. And the message that we see in these uh, next few chapters, it's really very simple. God says to the nations, 
don't get too cocky about me judging Israel because next I'm going to turn my judgment on you. The nations have been standing on the sidelines like a mad footy supporters at a rugby game, cheering God on as he destroys Israel. Bring it on, God. They're deserving everything they get. Yeehaw. And God says, well, I'm going to judge you now. And you might think, well, what's wrong with, with cheering God on? Surely God would like people on his side uh, as he judges Israel. But the problem is, we've already seen, haven't we, God does not rejoice as he judges people. God does not want to judge and so as the nations stand on and cheer God's judgment, they're actually, their character is very different to that of God's. Look at our 25 verse 3, where God says to the Ammonites, Say to them, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated, over the land of Israel when it was laid waste, over the people of Judah when they went into exile. See, the Ammonites are cheering. They should be mourning. 25 verse 8, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because Moab and Seir said, Look, the house of Judah has become like all the other nations. Or 25 12, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Because Edom took revenge on the house of Judah and became very guilty by doing so. Or 26 2, Son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, Aha, the gate to the nations is broken. Its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. See, the nations have rejoiced, even profited from Israel's destructions. The king of Tyre is ready to go in and pick off the plunder. And so God says that he's going to judge the surrounding nations too. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Pretty Woman, um, but in the movie Pretty Woman... The, the main fellow makes his fortune by cashing in on other people's misfortunes at the start of the movie. So he makes his money by buying companies that are doing really badly. And then rather than uh, turning them around and helping them out, what he does is he shuts them down and he sells off all their equipment. He sells off their chairs and their desks and their photocopiers and the assets are worth more than he paid for the company. So he profits while they go under. And that's what the nations here are doing with Israel. They want a profit while Israel goes under. God and his judgment doesn't enter into their equation at all. All they want to do is get rich. And so for their arrogance, for their ignoring of God, he's going to judge them. And so from chapter 25, which we're just in now, all the way through to chapter 32, God announces his judgment on the nations. Uh, but the bit I wanted to look at today was the bit that Greg read, read about the nation of Tyre. Because uh, the nation of Tyre was the nation just to the north of Israel, and they were, like many of the other nations, very prosperous. And in fact, in tw chapter 27, we get a list of all the achievements of the nation of Tyre. So look at 25 verse 1. The word of the Lord... Sorry, 27... Chapter 27, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Tyre. Now I said chapter 27 was going to be a list of all Tyre's achievements and here he's talking about a lament. It's actually a lament for a funeral. And like many funerals, funerals at this funeral we're going to get a list of all the dead person's achievements. Tyre has a very good eulogy 
Tyre is like a great ship that's been built from all the best wood. So as we go down, look at chapter 25, verse, uh, chapter 27, sorry, verse 5. They made your timbers from pine trees from Sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Verse 6, of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars and so on. It's just kind of a picture language of Tyre being a very well-built and beautiful city. A wonderful human achievement. Materials imported from everywhere. And as we go on, we see Tyre was actually uh, quite prosperous in her trading. So look at verse 12. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of goods. They exchanged silver, iron, tin, so on. Verse 13. Greece and Tubal and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged slaves and articles of bronze. Verse 16, Aram did business with you because of your many products. They exchanged turquoise, purple fabric. Uh, Verse 20, I like, Dedan traded in saddle blankets with you. And so on. In other words, Tyre is a very rich city uh, that's done well from trading. The turning point comes in verse 26. Just listen to what is different here. Your oarsmen take you out to the high seas, but the east wind will break you to pieces in the heart of the sea. Your wealth, merchandise and wares, your marinas, seamen and shipwrights, your merchants and all your soldiers and everyone else on board will sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your shipwreck. Verse 36, the merchants among the nations hiss at you You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. Like a ship might sink in the sea, God is going to bring the nation of Tyre down and no one will survive. Which, I don't know about you, but it raises the question for me, what actually was wrong with what Tyre was doing? I mean, really, all we saw in chapter 27, as we read through that list, is that the city of Tyre is very good at business. They've got all these strategic alliances with other countries. They're trading goods. They're making good use of their natural resources. What's wrong with achievement? In fact, I think the nation of Tyre could um, pretty much be like the nation of Australia, couldn't it? Exchanging produce with other countries, making the best use we can of our natural resources, although probably we're not doing as good a job as Tyre. Working hard. In fact, not just as a nation. Isn't that what we're like in our own lives? Uh, Achievement after achievement, sporting achievements, academic achievements, business achievements. Is there, is there something wrong with achievement? Is God against success? Well, God is against a certain kind of success. God is against the kind of success that leaves him out of the picture. Uh, look at verse, chapter 28, verse 2 where God brings an accusation against the king of Tyre. Chapter 28, verse 2. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a god, are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you? 
by your wisdom and your understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. God hates human achievement that has no place for him. God is against our skill and our wisdom and our success if he's not at the centre of it. If we're at the centre of our skill and our wisdom and our success and it's about us, if we're our own God, then God hates our proud human achievement. It's the Tower of Babel all over again, isn't it? The problem with the king of Tyre is that he has achieved it all himself. It's like uh, Frank Sinatra sings. Now the end is here, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've travelled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. I wonder what God would think of Frank Sinatra's song. What does God think of the King of Tyre? What does God say to our godless achievements and goals? Well, verse 2. In the pride of your heart you say, I'm a God, but you are a man or a woman, not a God. See, we can play God with our life and think we're in control, but it stops when we die. Look at verse 9 of chapter 28. Will you then say, I'm a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, in the hands of those who slay you. You are not a God. We're not God. God is God. We're his creatures. That's the problem of Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. The serpent said, eat the apple and you'll be... The, the, the fruit, sorry. Not an apple. And you'll be like God. That was the Tower of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The king of Tyre thought he was a god. It's the problem of all human beings. We want to do it our way, without God. And to show the tragedy that it is, in the second half of 28, Ezekiel reminds us of just how far the king of Tyre has fallen. And it's that image of the Garden of Eden. Look at verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. That's a strange passage at first because uh, when was the king of Tyre in Eden? Adam and, Eve and, Adam and Eve got kicked out of Eden and no one has been allowed back in since. Well, I think the answer is um, twofold. Firstly, um, just in all the success of Tyre, Eden is always the picture of perfection in the Bible. And uh, maybe it's just saying um, Tyre, in all her wonderful trading, was like Eden. But I think it's perhaps also a bit deeper than that. When was the king of Tyre in Eden? Well, I think in Adam. It's saying that the king of Tyre, like any human, is a descendant of Adam. In other words, the great tragedy of the king of Tyre is that 
He's actually made to be in God's image. He was made to rule the world under God. He's not just some pagan king. He's one of God's creatures in God's image. That's how far he's fallen, that he's decided to overthrow God and make himself God. That's the tragedy of all of us on this earth. We're all in God's image. We're all made to be like God. But that's not enough for us, is it? We don't just want to be like God, we want to be our own God. And so just like in Edom, just like in Babel, just like the king of Tyre, that's where the rubber hits the road for us in this passage. It's a warning about human pride. And we're all proud. We just don't like to admit it. Hands up if you're proud. Good. No, that's bad, but it's good that you're not too proud to admit it. See, at Bible study, we, or with our, uh, in our prayer groups, we easily confess certain kinds of sins. It's almost good to acknowledge some small sin so people will think we're being real and we're not too proud about ourselves. But who's actually going to come and say, I'm proud in the way I relate to other people? We're too proud to admit we're proud. And yet pride is so deadly, it's at the heart of our rebellion against God, we should not play games with it. Pride leads us to seek our own glory, to look good in the eyes of other people rather than to seek God's glory. Pride stops us being real with people because what if they find out what I'm really like? Pride is what makes us cover over our failures rather than confess them to other people. Pride means we don't back down in arguments when we're wrong because above all else we want to win and be right. Pride is the f- when we fear the danger of being exposed more than the judgment of God. Pride is when we doubt God's word because we think that we know better and we're going to miss out if we, don't go, if we go his way. Pride is the essence of sin. It's the problem in Adam. It's the problem in Babel. It's the problem with the nations and the king of Tyre. It's the problem with us. Pride will take us to hell. There's only one way to be saved from our pride. Jesus died to forgive us for everything that arises from our selfish pride. In fact, Jesus is the exact opposite of the king of Tyre, isn't he? The king of Tyre was a man who wanted to become God. Jesus is God who became a man. King of Tyre made himself proud. Jesus made himself humble. In fact, listen as I read from Philippians and uh, compare this to the king of Tyre. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a mockery that passage makes of our pride. Because what does God do? He doesn't, Jesus doesn't hold on to equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbles himself. And once he's found in human likeness, like Adam was in the, um, the likeness of God, what does Jesus do? He doesn't grasp on and want to uh, be like God again. He humbles himself to death on a cross for us. So which king will you be like? King of Tyre, who prides himself on his own achievements, lives as if you're God, or will you be like King Jesus, who submitted himself to God and who calls us to take up our cross and follow him? Do you want an incentive to do it? Well, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray.